Now entering Nerdist.com. The ATX Television Festival is always a wonderful experience, and Season 6, which was held June 8th through 11th this year, 2017, was no exception. As usual, Austin was the place to be for TV fans who got panels and programming of current series like The Americans, Bajillion Dollar Properties, and The Mick, reunions of Northern Exposure, Battlestar Galactica, the shows of Linda Bloodworth Thomason, and others, and panels on topics ranging from first gigs and big breaks to TV under Trump. I'm going to bring you recordings of a whole lot of these panels, and today's episode is one of them. ATX itself is putting up video of many of the events, and you can find those at atelevisionexperience.com. They'll also soon offer podcasts, both ones you'll find here and recordings exclusive to the ATX podcast feed at atelevisionexperience.com slash podcasts. Check that out in the coming months. In the meantime, first of all, go get tickets to Season 7 of the ATX Television Festival. It's June 7th through 10th, 2018. And as usual, it'll be a special TV experience. And now, enjoy today's episode. Dan Feinberg from The Hollywood Reporter. Okay, so we are going to be talking a lot about prepackaged entertainment, which means several different things. If you actually looked in the guide, it means both IP and established property, but it also means kind of when agencies put together groups of talent and sell them to networks and whatnot all as a package. So we're going to talk a little bit about all kinds of things, hopefully some fun stuff. So uh, we have Kathleen McCaffrey, HBO VP of Originals. We have Grant Gish, VP of Comedy Development at Marvel. We have Carolyn Newman, VP of Scripted Programming for E1. We have Alex Mangione, Head of Development for Amblin TV. We have Ali Krug, Vice President for Annapurna TV. We have Peter Gal, Head of TV Development for DreamWorks Animation TV. And we have Simran Sethi, SVP of Original Programming and Development for Freeform. Okay, so I want to start... You know, got general broad questions, but I want to start with something specific and, and maybe juicy uh, for Kathleen. I, I know it's not necessarily exactly your purview, okay. but of course HBO has one of its flagship shows with an expiration date coming. Yes. And last I heard, there were between four and 22 Game of Thrones uh, spin-offs, prequels, etc. You know, in development, contemplation. As you look at what that brand has done for HBO, what is the importance of kind of continuing it, and what are the sort of secrets in HBO's mind in terms of what is going to actually count as a viable Game of Thrones-branded sequel? That's a kind of a hard question, actually. I mean, I guess the answer is, this is the worst answer ever. Is that I, don't, I, th- I don't think we know. I mean, I think we have hope that these spinoffs will become... I mean, we didn't know Game of Thrones was going to become Game of Thrones. You sort of can't guess at something like that. It was a great, really strong script. You know, obviously Dan and David are incredibly talented, you, and there, you know, there's a property, which, to our point, there was, you know, a book, many books behind it, and so you trust that there's enough material for ongoing series, blah, blah, blah. With the spinoffs, I think you just... I mean, we're ho- we hope that 
I, they, we don't know. <laughs> truly, like they're writing the scripts, and we'll see. Like if it's on the page, and it feels like it matches, you know, sort of the uh, the level of fandom and all of that stuff, then we'll move forward. But it's very much anyone's guess right now as to what will come out of this process. But is it a different pressure since this is something that HBO hasn't really done before? Of course. Before? Of course. Like, the, my, my boss, Casey, who's awesome, he's, when he got the job, he was like, I'm the guy who has to find the next Game of Thrones. It's a really big... I'm like, I'm like you're going to lose your hair and go gray. Like, it's going to be really stressful, but we'll, we'll figure it out. And, it's, and, maybe, and maybe it's not... Maybe the answer is to not continue it, but we'll see. We're going to let everybody write the scripts and then take it from there. I think there will be an uproar somewhere if the answer is not to continue. I think you're it, probably so. right. <laughs> it has a lot. A lot of people are hopeful, but but to because of that, there's a huge pressure. Of course. Sorry. It's, and now this is going to be sort of me out. Gen- <laughs> <laughs> like what am I? Saying? I can't say anything that's going to be in the press. Like, be careful. This is general, and it's going to be for anyone who sort of wants to jump in. Um, I tend to do my homework when I'm reviewing something, and that means that I'm the the nerd who reads the book something's based on, uh, who makes sure that if it's based on a TV series, I've seen all of it. You know, it's a lot of homework, and I find that now two-thirds of the shows I'm reviewing are based on something else. I have to do homework in order to understand what they are. And I guess I'm wondering if it feels like this is proliferating more to you guys, and if it's as simple as in a world with so much damn TV this is a way of cutting through the clutter, is to give people a name they know, or if you guys think there's something else underneath it. It's a big question. Anyone who's got an answer, though. <laughs> I think you said it is, you know, call it what you will, cutting through the clutter. I think it, to me, it's built-in marketing. You know, I think it's a, it's a risk business that we're in where most of the stuff we develop just fails. But I think that, uh, you know, you have to get used to that. So when you have a leg up, meaning you have a great book or you have a great comic book or you have a great pre-existing property, for whether it be a movie or an old TV show, it eliminates a little of that risk because you think that there's built in at least promotional opportunity. There's, there's brand awareness. So as much as it's a risk business, I think most networks, because there's so much money involved, are a little risk averse. And this helps with that a little bit. And I think the more you it's can It's an insurance it policy. Out, yeah, exactly. And they don't always work, as we all know. We've seen plenty of them fall flat. But going in, it does give you a little bit of confidence. And I think it also helps you attract great talent. If you have a really solid property, you can get great actors, directors, writers. So I think, yeah, you, it's clutter, whatever you will. I think it does give you a little bit of insurance and just balance in the whole business. And I do think, just to Grant's point, in a world where there's also competitiveness for the writers and the directors and the actors having something that whether or not it has a cult following or not that's an interesting property to attract the talent to work on it is actually part of what's behind it for us too in terms of finding material and just buying properties so we have something cool to offer writers um, who are looking for something to work on. I was going to say a lot of great prolific writers don't have ideas (laughs) so um, we find that a lot where we want a kernel a piece of IP, source material, a book with a roadmap, an article, whatever it is. I mean, more and more we're finding that we're bringing stuff to writers. I don't know what that says. Well, I'm curious about that, the sort of the lack of good original ideas. What is the process wherein you're sitting and you're meeting with a writer and you go, okay, this person has a, a voice, they just apparently don't have a story to tell, so how can I match them to something that I already have? How does that work? You're asking me? Well, since, since you brought it up, you can start with it. <laughs> I mean, I would say if we have, like, a property, if we have a book, 
I guess we look for writers that sort of have the same sensibility, have the same voice, have worked in that specific genre, whether it's comedy or drama or, you know, horror, fantasy, sci-fi, and we figure out if, you know, they speak to the material, if they have a way in, if they have a point of view. I think more than anything, we want to make sure that these writers have, like, a very distinct vision and it's sustainable, um, so if a younger writer comes in and we think that they have a really good point of view about a piece of property, I think oftentimes we like to bring in a showrunner as well to be able to carry out that vision. I, I think in our world, what I'm always following first is passion. So I won't necessarily be looking to do the initial pairing. I'll be looking to present a range of options to, a, to, to talent and see what they warm to. Because we have the, the DreamWorks library, the Universal library of titles, then plus we have the classic media library of hundreds of characters. So we'll call the list, bring it to creatives, follow the passion first, and then go through the process of figuring out if their, their take is the right one. But we, we're looking to ignite passion. Well, I'm curious about the, the culling of the list process. And this is for you, Peter, but also for Alex, because Amblin has its library as well. At any given moment, how actively are you considering digging into that library and for how many different things at any given time? Um, I mean, it, it, w our libraries are quite significant. So you have to be thoughtful. Like, I, we've gone into our library and we have everything from Baby Huey, who you remember is a giant, mentally challenged duck in a diaper, and we can't really figure out what to do with him as a character, but we've also got everything Jay Ward did. We've got, you know, Rocky and Bullwinkle, and, you know, some of the most important animation characters of all time. So we're going to focus on the things that have had some longevity, or things that we just look at and feel relevant to us for some reason. Like, a good example was Rocky and Bullwinkle. I looked at that a few years ago, and I said, I don't know if this is relevant to kids today. It was born from, like, a Cold War ethos, and that's gone. Well, now we're going to develop that because that feels relevant all of a sudden. So it's, it's timing and material and, and passion. And, and we, were, we were just talking about that backstage. Um, you know, we have extensive libraries to look at, but, you know, there are iconic properties that you wouldn't want to reboot unless you had a reason for it. So a few years back, we rebooted Minority Report. Um, the writer had a really great take how to make that viable as a network procedural. And we really loved it, and it made sense. We're rebooting Animaniacs, which is from the eight. Is this better? Oh, that is amplified. Oh, OK. Um, we're rebooting Animaniacs, which is I from love Animaniacs so much. Does anybody want to sing? I still like the planets and all the capitals. I know all it's a, because of Animaniacs. I gotta say, like, and that's that's a that's an existing IP that you would be surprised how many incoming calls it generates because there are so many writers that are passionate that grew up with it that sing me the theme song in in meetings. Still, and should, we, should we sing we it? Do it? Please, somebody sing, sing it, it because I'm not gonna do it on my own. Um, <laughs> this one doesn't work anyway. So. <laughs> oh, oh, it works. For go, go for it. It's oh, working great. now. Um, so, you know, that one, an, another passion IP that we package is Amazing Stories. That's also something that, you know, a lot of people grew up with. It was a, a anthological kind of wish fulfillment, um, you know, Steven Spielberg's response to a Twilight Zone type anthology. And we felt like 
the market is incredibly ripe for that. Um, I think looking at our back library, it's really about when there's a reason to do it because there are so many to choose from. We don't, we don't look at it every day. We just kind of look at it when somebody's, somebody comes in for a meeting and says, oh my gosh, have you ever thought about doing that? And the passion gets us excited about it. So. Well, you, you mentioned Minority Report, and, and one of the things that strikes me in the network development season is the number of things that are being remade at any given time where I look at the title and I go, wait, I don't understand what the value of just the title is. Because So Minority Report, when I think of it, I think of Spielberg, I think of Tom Cruise, and then there's the title. I'm curious whose job it is to figure out when an actual title has value and where the title's value lies. That's a really great question and something that came through in the focus groups. You know, that, that, that title was an old enough title that it, it was not a significant value add to the launch campaign. But, um, you know, Animaniacs and Amazing Stories are, and there's tremendous name value to that. Um, I, think, I think it's, you know, a learning curve and gauging the market. Well, like uh, Kathleen, if... Westworld had been called Old Westland or something that wasn't a movie from 40 years ago, would it have had the same value? That's a good question. I think, you know, obviously, because Westworld's so specific, it was, it was a small following, but it definitely attracted a certain audience. But I think that's a really good question. I don't know. I mean, I don't know that it was significant enough. I, it wasn't just fans of the movie who came to watch the series, obviously. It's a big show for us. And so... And I think people watched it and then went, oh, it's a movie too. So it was, a, you know, it's a, there were enough new audience eyeballs on it um, that I, I think, it, you know, it helped, but didn't, it's not crucial. Now, Carolyn, you come up at this from a different perspective because you work for E1, which is an internationally based company. And so you have sort of a sense of what the international marketplaces are for these. How much would you say that international is driving almost all of the sort of remake, reboot, adaptation mania? Are titles more important for an international marketplace? Well, I think there's two questions there. Probably three or four, actually. <laughs> so let's start with how is international driving? I think more than ever, because there's so many TV shows in the American marketplace in particular, international for places like Amazon, like Netflix, probably like HBO, not to speak for HBO, but, but they're driving, now being able to reach those customers um, it's driving a lot of now what people, I think, are starting com to commission. How do we get more eyeballs to our shows? It's not so much within America anymore. I think you have to look outside those borders, especially because, you know, for more um, advertiser-based uh, um, players, you know, you're just not making your money off of your advertising. So how you have to own it and you have to be able to sell it. And so I think that is going to, which is kind of like the movie business in a way, you know, like it's, it's going to follow a little bit of that movie business idea and trying to find talent and ideas that will be global. And although you can also have them be specific, that, that's not like necessarily mutually exclusive, but I do think it's going to start driving things in a different way. And vice versa, and things are going to start coming from international and coming into America. So it's going to go both ways. Um, we're seeing a lot of that as well. Well, how do you keep an eye on what titles have what value in what territory and how you can you know, leverage a title that might have huge value in Spain and has less value here but still sell it to American audiences and American networks? 
That is a good question. I think you can see, I mean, you, can, you don't really ever know until you put something out there 100%. You can do focused threat tests, you can do you know, specific focus tests, but you never really know how something's going to pop until you put it out there. I mean, that's just part of the fun of this business. It's like, well, you know, hopefully, because you can't quantify it. So I think what you can see in, when you start kind of looking at metrics is how things play in certain territories and try and find like that access point, that kind of like Venn diagram where you can kind of hit it. Um, because when you look at enough titles and you see how they work over several territories, you start to notice things like, hmm, Canal Plus and this, you know, in CTV in Canada, they have similar tastes and stuff between them do very well. You know, so you can start to see how different relationships between broadcasters start to work. And so I know it's not exactly getting to title, but I think through that, then you can start to find the title, because it's the title that's driving it. So um, you, you can start to see relationships and how different titles will be beneficial for those relationships. And Grant, how is it different when sort of the brand or the title associated is the company brand? Right. I mean, it doesn't matter what you attach to Marvel's dot, 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 it becomes Marvel's. <laughs> no, it's exactly right. I, I think for me, and you know, I've been there 10 months now, helping them get into the comedy side of the TV business. And part of the appeal of, of jumping into that world is that you do have that giant red Marvel flag on everything that you take out to sell and everything you put up on screen. And it is sort of a built-in mark of quality, a built-in mark of something exciting is coming, uh, something surprising is coming. I think it worked really well with their launch of Jessica Jones, and that was a character even I was uh, ignorant. I didn't know who that was. They put the Marvel insignia in front of it, and you're automatically intrigued. You're like, this is just a regular, boring name, Jessica Jones, but you see the Marvel in front of it, and you're automatically pulled to check that out. Uh, I think Netflix helped with their ad campaign that was something like, soon everyone will know her name, which was admitting no one knows who this is, <laughs> but trust us, oh, and here's the Marvel. So, so I think it helps whatever network you're going to, they say, hey, we'll slap that Marvel on there, we'll get it built in. We know we're going to get that core audience to at least watch the first couple episodes. Uh, th that is really helpful when you're selling something, and not to mention when you're going out to package something. Um, when you're going to find a writer, when you're going to find a director, anybody, any crew, you know, they're huge fans of this brand, of this company, because you've got fans of the comics, you've got fans of the movies now, and now, you know, in the last five years or so, fans of the TV. So it is just sort of a great backbone to have, uh, really, of just a quality marker. Well, for you, and this is also for Cimarron, because you guys are doing uh, New Warriors together, why is that... And new... Cloak and Dagger. And Cloak and Dagger, right. So why is that New Warriors, why is that not the Squirrel Girl show? <laughs> uh, it's a really good question. I think, you know, she's obviously one of the better known and, and, and favorite characters that will be in that show. Uh, it's based on, this, this particular concept of New Wars is based on a series of comics that actually existed uh, from about 10 years ago, written by a guy named Zeb Wells, uh, that took these characters and put them in sort of a comedic, you know, sort of took a comedic tone as opposed to what they had been, you know, a little bit more serious. Uh, I think they actually were responsible for causing, causing the Marvel Civil War. I don't know the whole story, but that seems legit uh, and not funny. Uh, not when you talk to real Marvel fans. Um, but in this case, it's pure comedy. She'll be at the forefront. You know, I think there's just so much to be had there. She's a great character. I have no doubt she could probably car have carried her own show and carried her movie. But this will be something else for her, you know. Uh, it will show different sides to her. It'll show what she's missing, what she wants out of being a superhero. Um, there's all sorts of angles you can hit. Uh, and it takes a little bit of pressure off her as well. Uh, if you just call it the Squirrel Girl Show, she better be 
you know, better be a really dynamic show. I think with superhero movies, it's tough when you have one character, any TV show for that matter, when you have just one character, that's a lot of pressure to carry a show. Um, I think when you add an ensemble element to it, which a lot of these, you know, Marvel movies have done really well, Avengers, all these, even X-Men, uh, it allows you to dole out that pressure a little bit on different characters. Uh, not that that was the thought process behind this. Uh, I think there's just something really rich there in having her in a group to mind. Would you agree? Yeah, we, I think we were just, Squirrel Girl clearly was, is an iconic character and yeah. my personal favorite, yeah. which is, uh, you know, one of the big reasons we were excited about the property. But then as we explored the other characters, a lot of whom we weren't necessarily familiar with at the onset of the project, it's just exciting to have that ensemble vibe to the comedic show. A, because young ensembles are always lovely when you get them right uh, and it was just a really exciting way to twist that genre in uh, in a way that was unexpected for us but Squirrel Girl was of course the biggest draw <laughs> so Peter you guys have adapted a large number of obviously the most successful DreamWorks animations movies into TV shows what is the process when the movie is being made of is there a simultaneous development going on we think that this character could be a hook for a TV show we think this idea is a hook for a TV um, show at the same time um, yeah, yeah. And, and I'm not sure if we have the right recipe for it I mean we are developing our TV shows way earlier in the life cycle of a film than anyone else in Hollywood. So at Disney, for instance, you notice with Disney and Pixar, there's a tendency, the movies come out, they see how they do, they decide on the sequel strategy, they give it some time, and then maybe TV can get access. In DreamWorks, it's been the opposite. And part of it was that you know we pitched this deal to Netflix in 2012 that they agreed to, um, which was crazy. It was over a thousand episodes of television. It was 14 series. It expanded to 18 series. And, um, and a lot of those were based off titles that hadn't come out yet. So what we do is we look at each of the films as it's in process. In our world, luckily, there's, there's almost always an angle to turn the film into a TV series. I, there have only been one or two films that didn't feel like they would really work as a kid series. So what we do is we look at each one and decide whether we want to make it uh, hew very closely to the original feature, meaning do we want that same CG look, that same um, vibe, this focus on the main characters, do we want to focus on secondary characters, which we've done in a couple of series, do we want to move it into 2D animation and make it much more comedic than the feature? So we, we develop almost every feature into a series, it's just a matter of the creative choices along the way. And what is the role of the original movie creator then in, in the hypothetical TV projects, or does it simply go off in its own direction because you're already working with kind of it, committee it, approach? It depends on, on the creators and what, what our initial thoughts are to do with the series and how it dovetails with them and their talent and also what else they're busy with. So a lot of times the feature team is onto a sequel or onto something and they don't really have time to heavily focus on the TV series. But you know, there's some key pieces of talent that we always want, like Tom McGrath, who just directed Boss Baby, directed all the Madagascar films. He's unbelievable. So when we're developing a show off a Tom McGrath movie, we are trying desperately to claw any time we can get with him to have him look at read scripts and look at material. We always engage with the feature producers, so we make sure that anything we're doing with the franchise on an ongoing basis doesn't step on the toes of sequel ideas. So we, we have a, a healthy, you know, kind of pitch and catch back and forth of materials. Um, on most of the movies, we have pretty heavy involvement from the feature teams. 
both the rest of you, what what do you guys see as being the importance of having a, a creator involved? Is that, a, is that an extra voice that you don't necessarily need or want in the room, or is it something where the risk of having a creator distance themselves from something based on their property is too great, and, and that's the danger? I think if you have a strong POV from the writer and the TV writer, the one who's executing the actual TV show, it can be either which way. But I think if that is where this, the interpretation needs to primarily come from, often these shows should veer from where the source material has gone. And sometimes an original creator is precious about that, and sometimes they're very open to it. But if there is a strong voice from the showrunner and the person interpreting it, it can go either which way. And as a fan, I would point to Jessica Jones. Like, I don't know the history of the original IP. I don't, I'm not a Jessica Jones uh, aficionado, but I bought into it because I was like, oh, this is an interesting looking show, and I was obsessed, and I think it's such a unique point of view, and I don't know if going off of that original IP, you would have gotten as rich and as beautiful a vision. It was clearly a creative vision custom made for the, for the canvas of television. Um, so. But it can also go in the not to contradict you, but it can go. You know, but it can go. No, in the please, other, please do fight. You know, no, I, no, 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 no. I do. No, think, no, of course, I do think it is. It is unique to the passion it, of, of what, each and every yeah. pieces. Because for with um, sharp objects, which we're doing mm-hmm. with you guys. I mean, Gillian is like, is very much involved, and obviously she's the writer. Obviously with Marty Knoxon, who is you know the showrunner. But you know, I think she's been really helpful in kind of taking the material and and pushing it. Um, forward and coming up with what a second season could be, which would be very different from the book. So, you know, exactly. You never know. You, ne- you just exactly. never know. You kind of have to take it um, creator by creator and, and, you know, by each case. And they don't always want to be involved. I mean, at least in, in my corner of the world, like I, we've dealt with a number of authors who are really excited that we're doing a series uh, based off their book or graphic novel or whatever, and they want the occasional touch base just so they're aware but it's not what they do, and they're they're you know once they've once we've introduced them to the talent that's going to execute, and they're excited and feel a creative synergy, they're very willing and happy to kind of step away and let it take its course. Now, Carolyn, going back to Sharp Objects, uh, that's a property that was packaged from the star Amy Adams to the director John Mark Valley to, as you say, Marty Knox. And what are the advantages of that packaging process and being able to go out with an, go out to a network rather with the entire thing top to bottom? And then Kathleen, what are the and Simran as well? What are the disadvantages from the network side of not having the control over those things? Well, I think, you know, when you're putting these things together, you're, you're putting together what you think is, like, the ultimate version. If, like, you could get anybody to, like, the source material that everybody knew, and, and so, and especially coming off of Gone Girl. Um, so, so when you go to the marketplace, um, you are taking a risk because you put a lot of money in terms of a studio, um, a lot of time, but if you hit it, um, it's, it's, an, it's a great way to go straight to series and, and, and get there faster. Um, so it's kind of like internal research and development. It's R&D. And you have to be careful how much you do it because it doesn't always work. But if you can hit that level of excellence, then, then you will be in a good position, I think. I mean, I, I agree. And I, I'm sort of of two minds about it because it's obviously worked very well for us. Sharp Objects, Big Little Lies, True Detective Season 1, these, these all came to us. And we definitely now are prepared for packages like you sort of you have to hear from agents like okay or whomever like the, something is coming in in three weeks and 
it's this big package and it'll be a series order. And so those are, you know, we're prepared for them and we're, we're ready for them and we like them. But also, you know, it's conflicting because we also have stuff internally that we're developing. And so you're like, okay, these people, you know, this package comes in, it cuts the line. So it's, it's, it's both things. It's very exciting when something like that walks in the door and you're like, yes, obviously, Amy Adams and Jean-Marc, like, yes is the answer. But then you're like, oh, but the, the stuff that we've had for 18 months that we sort of like love and have rolled up our sleeves for has to now, you know, take a back seat. So it, I feel two ways about it, but I, but everything, both work. I mean, right. it's, it's and that's the risk, thing. right? That's a risk, I yeah. mean, it's a huge risk because you know, as you're going out there, it, yeah. for a studio, especially an independent studio, you're in this really weird position because you have to um, explain in a way why. Why do, why, we need, why do you need us? And so you want to put together a reason, but at the same time, you don't want to put together so much of a reason that you kind of blast that out other development, and it has to be at a certain level. So it is, it's a, it's a, you know, you're just trying to find your way, and hopefully you do. And if you're, if you're getting that level of talent, it makes it much more appealing, clearly. There are a lot of packages out there that just aren't quite as, quite as um, premium. And then it's a disadvantage. And when it comes in the door, packaged up like that already to us, and maybe you like one element of it, but you, mm-hmm. that star is not exactly the right star for us, or uh, you know, that director won't break through for our brand, it does then hurt the project because we don't want a part of the package. And someone on the selling end either has to decide to cut bait or take it somewhere else. Yeah. Well, under normal circumstances, how much flexibility is there on a project when it comes to you in that respect? Like, do you do you get to go? I don't want, you know, this person <laughs> come back to me with seventy five percent of it, and I'm there. Or do they say, okay, well, if you don't want it, someone's bound to take the other part. It depends on the agent. It depends on the agent. You know what I mean, if you're like, it depends on if they have a like sale. this. I, then I don't like the writer. I don't like whatever. They'll be like, okay, we'll bring it back. Some are hungry to do that, and some are like, bye, going to Netflix. See ya. And you're like, oh, okay. You know what I mean? And, but that's a real risk, and it's something we talk a lot about. Like, we sit in our meetings now, and if something comes in, and there's something we don't like about it, or whatever, like, are we okay if those if this goes to Netflix, Amazon, Hulu? Are we going to be sad if the billboard comes out on another network? And that's a real conversation. It's hard, you know. But also, it's not, you know, it's. I don't think we've ever dismantled a project that comes in, but we would, I mean, if we really, really wanted a piece of it, we would ask, but it all depends on the seller. We've gotten in front of a couple of them, you know, when an agent or producer calls us and it's like, you know, maybe this package is coming together. We've, we've often said to producers, just, we love that book. We love that title. Just, we'll buy that from you and let's package it up together. And it is actually much easier packaging it. After you've gotten a sale. Isn't it fun? fun? I like doing it too. On the, on the selling side, I make so many calls to buyers saying, is this a value add? Is this, and, and if you start to get the, eh, maybe, then why are you making that deal? And it, you, can, you can do the homework ahead of time, but you're right, like so many of those very large packages have been created by the agencies. Um, we, we definitely try to assess, you know, we have a couple of specs that we're considering packaging now. Some of them are very small character dramas. How do you break through the clutter? How do you create, like, they're beautiful, beautiful scripts. How do you create the, you know, how am I going to get it on your radar to pay attention to that? Well, you get a great director, or you get the star, but only if it's a meaningful one. It really has to be undeniable. Well, I mean, it's, it's obviously such a power play on every level. What do you guys think when you hear about, you know, there's always a rumbling that, agency X or Y is contemplating a studio arm, you know, sort of taking it out of somebody else's hands, basically. Does that worry you, terrify you? 
I'm shocked a few of them haven't already. It's, it, it, there's money to be made, it feels like, and they do have a lot of the power. So it feels inevitable, but I guess we'll see. There's something stopping them. I mean, they're going to probably start looking to international. I mean, if you look at IMG and kind of, you know, their success with the night manager, um, it's how these things sell internationally. That's that's probably going to be their focus. So I don't think it's going to be everything that these guys do. It's going to actually be in our territory, a lot of it, which is that's where they're going to make their money. Um, so I don't think it's going to, like, totally get, like, take away the business, but it'll definitely influence it greatly. Now, Ali, you work for a, rel- a company that's relatively new in the TV space, you know, obviously a great reputation in feature films. What is the role of finding these sort of brands or, um, or IP names that can make the splash, that can sort of make everyone go, okay, Annapurna TV buys dot, dot, dot? Um, I think it's a combination. I mean, we have, we're like actively developing... 35 projects right now, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is uh, well, good question, um, uh, which is really fun and really exciting and a lot of work. And, you know, it, it's a lot different on the feature side where they have pretty much a one-to-run, one-to-one ratio. Everything they put into development, they plan on making. Um, we're not a platform. We're not a network. We don't we have to kind of take chances on big things and put a lot of money behind big things, big properties. Um, and then we want to take chances on those new, unique, distinct voices that are, um, you know, young novelists, young writer performers, um, staff writers, and we're doing a lot of that too. So I think there's a balance. Um, you know, we optioned Maria Semple's uh, new book today will be different, and we got Julia Roberts attached and sold that to HBO. Um, we just optioned a Philip Roth book, Plot Against America, for David Simon. Um, we optioned uh, it's one of my favorite projects, um, the Rolling Stones article that came out about the Pamela Anderson Tommy Lee sex tape scandal, and Seth Rogen and James Franco are attached, and so. <laughs> Which of them is playing Pamela Anderson? Seth, Seth is playing Pamela. An- no, um, and uh, so so in that respect, we have we attached a writer. We're pa- we're paying him to write. We're packaging that up, and hopefully, you know, driving a commitment at some of these networks. But you know, we don't always want to do that. I mean, I think partly too, you know. HBO, Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, whoever, they want to feel like they've been a part of the process. And we, you know, for the Maria Semple, Julia Roberts uh, show, for example, we didn't attach a director first. I think we definitely could have, but we wanted to do it in step with the network, with HBO, um, and have them be a part of the conversation. What does, who, who are you guys excited about? Who do you feel like is best... Um, for this project, and they've obviously had a lot of experience and, and success with uh, this sort of limited series lately, and one one director. Does that make sense? So I think it's a combination, um, and I think for us as a mini studio, um, there's a lot of projects where we're EPs on and producers, and then we're studio. We're we're planning on deficiting things. We're cash flowing. Um, we're the studio on a, a Coen Brothers project that's shooting this summer for Netflix. So I think we're able to be flexible and nimble and whatever sort of suits the creative and suits the project. Um, but oftentimes, you know, if we sell the HBO, they don't want us to be the studio. You know what I mean? Unless something is totally undeniable, right? Like the sharp objects. So 
I think we just have to be flexible. And we do a combination and a wide range of, of things, working with the Coen brothers for their first TV show, and then, you know, baby writers, writer-performers. I mean, that's... I'm a, I don't give notes to the Coen brothers, <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's fun to roll up my sleeves and, and dig in on something um, that from a, from a writer that's emerging. Well, when you have something like the Julia Roberts Project, is the, is the IP even the, the selling point anymore, or is it Julia Roberts? I think it's the IP, actually, and I think... Um, that one specifically, the IP was a big deal. Yeah. That, yeah. We all read the book. And that then, book is yeah, fantastic. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. And Maria, um, she had written Where'd You Go, Bernadette, uh, that Anne, Anna Pern on the feature side is doing with Richard Linklater and Kate Blanchett, and she didn't adapt that herself, and this was, uh, Today Will Be Different was a project, a book she wanted to adapt herself, so she wrote a script, um, and that was to be, I, I mean, Julia Roberts, it's amazing, but that was her voice, you know, her vision, this character she created, which is very, very much her in a lot of ways, was mo- most exciting to me. Now, Kathleen, obviously you guys have a, a tradition of strong miniseries projects, and that's a thing, but still, the, the money is always in ongoing drama. So when you have something that's from a book, close-ended, how do you know when it has two, three, four, five seasons in it, or when you're just going to be satisfied, okay, Big Little Lies is just one season, that's what it is? Or is it? Or is it? <laughs> I, uh, but that's actually a great example, because I think you don't know. We were like, okay, we went into this one season, obviously it had a huge response, and um, Leanne got very excited to a point, whoever made the point about authors, like their book sales went through the roof, and she's very happy, pleased about that. And so now she's like, well, maybe there's something to this TV game. And so you kind of don't know, and you see, I think even with ongoing series, when you, you always look, I mean, yes, we want ongoing series, and sometimes the story, we, but we always, always defer to the creators in terms of what makes sense, and, and like when they end the show almost always comes from them. And so the, I think the same with a book or IP. It's like, how many do you, the creator, see? And we'll take it from there. And, and then if, you know, when, when you produce a season and you, at the, you get to the end of it and they're like, I think I could tell more story, we're very open to that. I think, you know, we just, it's project specific. I'll watch it, 10 seasons of Big Little Lies. So I will commit today to watch 10 seasons. <laughs> it was pretty fun, that one. I, I liked it. But with something like that, where it's packaged, how do you decide what's the point with which we couldn't do a second season. You know, if Reese and Nicole say, sure, we can do it, but Shailene doesn't. If uh, Mark Valley doesn't want to do a second season, is he essential? Or does it have to be all of them, et cetera? Does that make it harder it, to yes. project? Honestly. Yes. Um, I don't want to bring up True Detective season two. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes you need more elements than, you know, you just, it depends, it all depends on what the story becomes. You know, if, if Leanne and David E. Kelly and Reese come in and they're like, we can tell the same story, but Nicole and Shailene aren't necessarily in it. That's not what's happening, but just as an example, we would, we would still be like, okay, let's talk about that. You know, there, you, it's, it really depends on what the story, the narrative is going to be and, and how it can sustain and be supported by the pieces involved. I mean, I'm sure, certainly people would be like, where's Nicole and Sh- where are they? But, you know, if it makes sense, hopefully you fill it in a different way. But Sharp Objects, which does have a very finite ending in the book, that's being viewed as a multi-season or does it? <laughs> Just to steal your line. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's. The, yeah. We're like, if she, if they have ideas for season two, you're like, okay, all right, yeah, and, and they do, and they do, and yeah. it's actually, and it's organic. Um, but that's why, you know, going back, that's why it was great to have Killian, you know, involved, obviously, with Marty and kind of keeping it true uh, to what it was, but different. 
Okay, this is a big enough subject that I'm sure people have questions, so I want to make sure if anyone has questions about any of this, including Big Little Lies Season 2. <laughs> that you're killing me. I stumble through the Game of Thrones when I'm going to stump all the secrets you're asking me. I don't know. <laughs> Happen over there. Am I, am I screaming or am I blinking? Okay. Looks like... Um, so, uh, so I'm an author without age or manager yet because I just said something fluke happened. Do you guys uh, find, you know, no one usually speaks to me without an author or manager? Or, or is that, so is author, I mean, agent, manager, no. Um, and then how do you take someone like that? I mean, I want to be the next job White Trump, so, uh, at, at uh, you know, American or something. But uh, that, that's the, sort of my fancy. What do you do with something like that? Or how do you go, or do you go searching uh, organically as well? Or you just wait to be approached, because that's just what happens. I, I'll, I'll start the answer. Um... Unfortunately, in this day and age, there's so much liability attached to unknown quantities. Um, TV is such a writer-driven medium that it's always so exciting to find a new voice. So part of me loves to take every new author, you know, unsigned writer, but just because I have um, a company that I report to with tremendous potential liability, I can't. Um, you know, there's always those waiver of liability. Okay, you can submit there, but it really, it really becomes a very relationship-based um, submission process. That just knowing that there can be a conversation. If I read something, you know, Ali said she has 35 projects in development. I don't even know how many I have. I might have 60. Um, inevitably, I have a similar idea, and so it's really difficult to take in, you know, something from somebody and who thinks that their version of Homeland is 100% original, and yet there's like 20 other versions in the marketplace right now. So I think that was part of the question you yeah, were asking. Yeah, I heard that, and I totally get that part. So that's why I was more manager or agent, or do you care? I just said the wrong yeah. I think if it, it doesn't make a difference between agent and manager as long as they have fantastic taste. You know, there are agents and managers that I will take their call because everything they've sent me is amazing. And then there are a few who I I kind of put that at the bottom of my yeah. phone sheet because they've, you know, sent me 10 dogs. And, right. you know, you only have a limited bandwidth for what you can read. Other questions out there? Good question. Um, I'm wondering in terms of looking for content, obviously there's, you know, all the traditional kind of channels that you guys talk about. Um, Podcasts now are a really strong way of telling stories, not just um, kind of true crime, although that's a big one, obviously, serial, but like a lot of ways and a lot of comedies, stuff like that. So I'm wondering, do you guys look to um, podcasts for kind of finding talent in any ways? And can you talk about what that process does or does not look like? You have done that I'll take that one. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, we look everywhere. I mean, there, you know, we were um, in the dark is a great podcast that you know I think is really something interesting. There's you're always listening to things mm -hmm. and trying to figure out where's the new story and what's and how can you find a new voice certainly to expand upon. I mean, true crime has been very successful because of serial, but I don't think it's it's. Um, necessarily only going to be that way. I think more and more of those sources also for humor, for comedy, for new voices in that area, you know, if you have a huge following, if your podcast is getting, you know, millions of, of listens or, you know, I, I think it's important, you know, because then you go, okay, this, this person has a voice and people who are going to follow that voice. So, so I think it's going to become something more and more. And to take it a step further, we've actually got a digital 
uh, branch where I think we have about four podcasts that are in development, mostly you know scripted narrative podcasts. And our intent with that is not only great storytelling for everybody's commute, but also proof of concept. It's great IP to then, I mean, look at what happened with Homecoming and we're developing a grounded sci-fi scripted uh, podcast. We also, you know, have pursued quite a few. Like there's Limetown got set up and is being developed in... No, Limetown also. Yeah, and, and, and S-Town. And so S-Town, S-Town's an interesting one because it's, it's a very specific character drama. You think it's one thing and it changes genre episode to episode. I'm so curious to see how that translates to television. But. Or I mean, it could be film. I don't know that if they, I don't know if that landed yet, but. Yeah, does anyone know if that got set up I don't know. I heard David Fincher was getting it, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, because we, I think the entire town put a bid in. <laughs> like, everyone was like, okay. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, so, um, Ali, um, uh, Alex and Peter talked about how they have like these huge IP uh, treasure troves to, to plunder if they need to, you know, get the next thing. Are you guys using uh, like the film properties that um, as a jumping off point? Is that something that you, you a library that you guys are building, or is that just completely separate from what you're doing? Um, it's definitely separate. We've talked about it, and um, not for anything specific. I mean, I think what we kind of more are looking and talking about is is there a book, a property that can kind of be a film, a TV show, and we have an awesome gaming uh, VR department. So is there something that, you know, is world building, is maybe sci-fi fantasy that can, you know, a, a, the movie can be sort of the launching point and then we carry it into series and then there's this like really awesome immersive cinematic atmospheric game that we can create. So I think we're constantly talking, we're sharing writers, we're uh, sharing filmmakers, ideas, um, but it's more so in that space as opposed to adapting, although Sausage Party, the TV show, would be great. Um, <laughs> like, yeah, so, so it's more so that than, than looking at the things that they've already done, um, that they've done so well, and, uh, and keeping those a little separate. That could change, though. And, and one thing that's worth mentioning just for this general conversation is even though we have this huge library of content, by far our biggest hit so far has not been based on existing IP. It's our show Troll Hunters with Guillermo del Toro, which launched in December on Netflix, and that was driven by um, the power of the idea, the power of Guillermo and his passion for doing it. Um, it, it, it also, you know, it, I guess it achieved part of what we often want from a brand with some pre-awareness. It got Netflix invested at such a high level that they marketed it in a way they've never marketed any kids and family show before. So there's a lot of different ways to get passion going, at least in my corner of the business, in kids and family and in animation. We actually do take pitches from people who are unrepresented, writers, um, artists, all the time. Um, we don't require the people, you know, pretty much anyone who contacts us can get material looked at, a script read, someone on the team will do that. But, um, you know, I, I think in, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that many of the biggest hits are still entirely original and, uh, and there's still opportunity there. Um, there. When a package comes to you, how do you establish, like, if it's going to be a based on, adapted by, like, a one to one, like, with um, Big Little Live or something, there's, like, a change drastically from the end of the book to the end of the show, or, like, if Jessica Jones is, like, Kilgrave was, like, 
a completely different character than from in the comics or something like that? Like, how do you kind of establish how far a post will adapt the I can't speak specifically to Jessica Jones not having worked on that, but I think with our other properties at Marvel that we look at, it, it really really is, and I think it's been set up here entirely up to the creator. We'll hear pitches before we agree to attach somebody to something, and if it's a direction we love, you know, we hear from starting with episode one all the way to ten, basically. We want to hear what's happening in that series, what's your arc, uh, and if they take it to someplace we didn't think of and we like it, then great. Uh, we certainly don't want you to just base it exactly on what you've seen in the books. Um, so it's, you know, in the end, it's really, you know, it's inspired by, it's certainly based on, it's based on the characters. There are a lot of folks who I think will get credit for that, you know, the people who wrote the comics, you know, even back to the creator and the other people who worked on specific comics we use that have inspired specific storylines. So there's no one way to do it. It's sort of case by case. Uh, as far as what exact credit we have put, like at the front, inspired by based on, that is typically left up to a team of legal experts who can because each one means something completely different and probably means a different tier of participation so we leave that to them but try to include everybody who's had a hand in at least the story we're telling Alex how is it different when you work on something like Brave New World where obviously Aldous Huxley not so much alive anymore uh, what is the what is the control or proprietary interest that the estate takes um that's an interesting one because the property, um, the rights to the property were very aggressively pursued by the studio. So the studio has had the most interaction and we pretty much defer to them to uh, interface with the estate. So I can't speak to specifics, but um, clearly it's a fairly iconic property and we handle very, very carefully. I can speak to that. <laughs> When there are times where we go back to the, we had an incident yesterday, Grant and I, on a property where we as the network actually went back to the source material. We were like, wait, this character, um, you know, is this way and has this relationship in the, in the books themselves. How can we bring that back and inform the TV show with that, um, uh, with that in mind? So it does kind of, you know, it, sometimes things evolve and change and sometimes it's really great to have that place to return to to remember where the heart of the character is. In those circumstances, who has final veto between Freeform and Marvel? Uh, I think it's it's more of a collaboration, honestly, because Freeform. We both want that. <laughs> we both want the same thing in the end—a good show. Uh, but you know, I, I think there's never going to be a place where we're like we think one thing, they think the other. I think there's there's ways to talk through everything. And yeah. with almost everything, it's the creator, it's the showrunner, it's the writer. Yeah. That's the most important person, and that's the decider. So I was just curious, how do you deal with previous ideas when it comes to like historical characters, like tutors or anything writers? You know, how, how do you deal with that? Like not something of someone who maybe just died last year, but real people existed hundreds of years ago. Oh, we have a project in development based on the Freedom Riders story, and you know a lot of those people are still alive, and their uh, families are still alive, and so we're actually it does get messy and sometimes we just kind of take inspiration from, it, it's messy to go for real people often and taking the general vibe of what was going on in a historical time period and some kind of themes and applying it to a fictional character will give you more freedom in the storytelling than often going after a real person will do. Right, just to add to that, you know, when you start to, because you, you don't, the worst thing to do is have like real people and also a fictional world. And so, and, and so when you have to start creating narrative that didn't exist, but they're real people, 
it has like a really big could have like a really big effect because it could influence their children's narrative in those are real people it could influence you know people who worked with them and so all of a sudden you know and i think this is public masters of sex had that problem you know with their kids um, it wasn't really, the problem wasn't with the parents, the problem was with their kids. And so that was like a really in, like interesting example. Movies don't have as much of a problem because it's finite, but things like TV shows when you have to start really generating more story and that doesn't exist or you don't know for sure if it existed, that's when it gets tricky. Hi, my name's Amanda Ward. I'm a novelist here in Austin and I'm curious about what qualities you're looking for in novels that tell you it would translate to a miniseries. Who has recently bought a miniseries pitch? Anyone? I'll take that. Um, I, I think not only miniseries, but also ongoing series. If it's something that I am reading and I don't feel like it's work, and I'm, it's a page turner, that I'm in. That's just, that's the first step. Um, but you, you want, I think with, with everything, it's a, has this story been told? Is this, is this new territory to cover in television landscape? Um, and I think that, you know, for one thing that um, we're in development with is a unpublished Michael Crichton. Well, it's now published. It came out over Memorial Day. It's uh, on the New York Times bestseller list, Dragon Teeth, we're developing as a miniseries. And if you read the book, it's got a very finite arc. Um, it covers a period of history that is a true event, fascinating characters, but Michael Crichton found a really inventive way to access it for the audience. And I think those check a lot of boxes. Was one right next to them. Yeah, we look a lot um, outside of the U.S. We have places, um, we have development hubs. So we have, you know, in um, London, in Australia, in Toronto, and here. So we have people on the ground in all territories who are really working to help us find IP that we think can sell globally, which is cool. Um, so we have, you know, London Book Scouts. We have, we're not just, you know, we're obviously in New York too. We're looking at formats that are globally. And then we're also, which is really interesting, um, we announced this that we're doing Gaddafi um, with uh, Roberto Saviano and um, Nadav Sherman. And he did Gamora out of Italy. And that is... You know, um, and so that came from Italian partners that we work with, um, Palomar. So, so we're definitely, and I think it'll translate here. Most certainly, it's going to be in English. Um, so we're definitely on the ground, looking in all all over the world to find things that we think can break through and have unique voices. Um, Anyone else have a, an answer for that one? I mean, we, we definitely. I mean, the book fair circuit. So we go to Bologna, the largest international children's book fair is there every year. We go to London. We go to Frankfurt. We have people out scouting, and we find a tremendous amount of picture books and other material at the international festivals, and a lot of it is not originally English language. So it really, you know, we're sourcing, you know, from all over the world as well. Uh, let's see. Um, I have a question for Grant and for Alex. Grant, you were mentioning, you know, like networks and studios are, uh, you know, risk averse, and so IP is incredibly important. And then Alex, there was something I was turning over that you feel like you can't, it's harder because they're not based on IP necessarily. 
regularly, so they're harder to set up. Um, for independent financing companies that are not within networks or studios, um, besides paying for development or new deficit financing, do you see kind of cracks in the structure that a company like mine could take advantage of to be able to be part of like the, the no, 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 I'm curious on this. <laughs> I, I'm just wondering, like so many times, I you know I hear the the answer that that. Um, uh, you know, outside money from you know that, that doesn't generate from networks or studios is is um, irrelevant because you have. Who says that? <laughs> well, maybe we should talk about this. Um, but I just wanted to know generally what your ideas were in terms of outside financing getting Great question. Uh, you know, it's not something that we really have to think about specifically at Marvel or where I was before at 20th, just because. 20th was a, you know, it's a behemoth studio. It's not something they, they need to even consider. And at Marvel, certainly we're owned by Disney, so it's, we're in the same boat. But I do think you see it more and more. There's certainly people. Uh, what is it exactly that you do? You said that for companies like yours. I, I run a film and financing company right. um, that really started in film and this year has been focusing on TV. And so I've just been trying to figure out how to, how to maneuver. But I think that so many TV shows that are based on original ideas and not up here fantastic. And I would love to give you know, those, we're, we're really, we're, we're showrunner and director driven, and we have a lot of things in the film space like that, um, but I'm just trying to figure out how to I think that step one is is to talk to the major agencies. They love to figure out what to do with people's money, yeah. uh, and they're, they're good at it for the most part. There you go. you got a leg up, yeah. Talk to them, they can put you in touch with the, the producers who are who are looking for that, who also have the power, you know, the clout to take stuff out, but maybe don't have the infrastructure or the backing, and that could grow to something. But I, that would be exactly where I'd start, would be CAA, WME, right. UTA, all the, all the big ones. Yeah, bringing money to the table is, and especially now in this era of peak TV, and no matter who's backing you, money's always tight, because we just need a lot of volume. Bringing money to the table is huge, and I bet we could find you some people. <laughs> And just as a last question for each of you, um, give me a recent IP-related property that premiered on television where you're like, man, that was my dream. Wish I could have done that one. I'll take Handmaid's Tale. Obsessed. Yeah. Obsessed. That's why I jumped in first, because I think everybody <laughs> has watched it. Mine isn't on yet, but it's Animaniacs. So that... <laughs> was at the very top of titles that I would have, as an animation guy, would have loved to have been involved with. So we'll talk about what's next. Yeah. I, I'm watching The Sun on AMC. Uh, I love that book. Thought it was brilliant. Um, I've, I've liked where they've taken the show. I'm also partial. I just love watching anything sort of cowboy western related. It's been a while since they've done a good version of that. I think this is sort of a nice crossover between the two. Um, that is this fun. I think they're doing another season, which will be fun. I'm going to say OJ. I'm going with uh, Big Little Lies. Sorry, it was amazing. This is sort of a weird one, but Fleabag was based on Phoebe Waller-Bridge's play, and I'm obsessed with her and that show. Is Walking Dead too old? Is that too old? <laughs> Not at all. Well, thank you all very much for uh, chatting today, and thank you all for coming. Now leaving Nerdist.com.